So this morning we gather in Acts chapter 11. Shallowford, where we are today, a replant. You uh, might not know, but this was drawn in 1989. This was a master plan that someone put together for this property. They had a vision. They constructed this building. They were able to start ministry and even at one time put modular buildings over here that were later removed. Uh, I was not around, so I don't quite know how to give the testimony, but I know what I've been gathering, and I'm continuing to gather all that I can. As best I could tell, by the way, on that master plan, you're reminded that all these trees you see over here, that's part of our property too. So we only look at half of it every time when we gather. So yes, it would be a lot of trouble to use that property, but it could be used as part of the master plan here. But the people in those days, the church grew, I'm not sure exactly how many. Um, There's a pastor here. We talked to him a few months ago. We chased him down and found him. When he left and went back north, uh, the church had need of lay leadership, and they didn't quite know what to do, and it, it they couldn't even hang on. So finally, they went to First Baptist Church Woodstock and said, would you help us? And so the replant started, I'm guessing now six, seven years ago, when they first started using video here and trying to replant. So then uh, we were able to come and get the blessing to start preaching live and not using the video and trying to see what we could do to uh, start here. When a church planter goes to an area, he first asks all kinds of questions about the area. Who lives there? Uh, Do they need a church? What kind of people live there? What's their education? What's their socioeconomic? What's their need? And how would a church structure ministry to meet those needs? Some of you know that for a few years I was able to work closely with church planters throughout North America and watch these guys go into 32 big cities if you include the six in Canada that we have on the map at the North American Mission Board and look at all of those cities and say what does it take to reach people in a city as you can imagine here at Shallowford we've read the books we've interviewed the people we've asked the questions and we've said who lives here is there a need for a church How do you communicate with the people that live here? What should the strategy be? How do we go about this? And so as we ask those questions and we ask, one guy called it breaking the missional code. How do we break the code of knowing who lives here and what they need? Some of you in the room are direct result of us praying that God would send some very close neighbors who live around this church house. Certainly it's fine if those people travel here because they see we're trying to grow a ministry. Some come with a missionary spirit to help us launch a ministry. But make no mistake about it, we're still replanting Shallowford. And 
we have vision. I'm not sure it matches that exact master plan, but we have vision of next steps even for modulars. Met with some men this morning to talk about what it would mean to have modular buildings here and what we might need to do to, to continue down that path. Now, why do I bring that up? Am I launching a building program this morning? No, just relax, all right? What I'm trying to do is to get you to see there are models. You can look to some of those models, and you can say, how did they do it, and what can we learn? And the best model that I can think of would either be the Jerusalem church that we looked at in Acts chapter 2 or the church in Antioch that we meet in Acts chapter 11. This church in Antioch is a model church in very many ways. So this morning we're just going to ask some questions from the text as who were they and what did they do and what were the results of what they did. And then we're going to see if we can apply that to us. Now you've heard the text. So now let's just walk through it together. You know, there's not a recipe for how you do this. I'm not going to ask some of you guys. Maybe you're just as good or better cooks than your wives. I'm not taking a survey. Come on now. Don't be nice to each other. <clears throat> I'm really good at cooking about two or three things, okay? Uh, and when we start trying to do something else, man, I have to go to recipe. Recipe is going to tell you how, what ingredients. It's going to give you some kind of measurement. It's going to tell you when to add them, and you can leave out one thing or add it at the wrong time and mess up the whole thing, right? But there's no recipe for church planting. There's no recipe for replanting. There are things to be considered, but the way they're added in and what happens really becomes something that God has to give leadership to, and sometimes people just discover, wow, look what God did that we didn't even expect. The church in Antioch is a great church to look and see who they are, what they did, and what were their results. You've heard the text. We're going to begin in verse 19. And looking at this church, I first want to ask the question of just who are these people? Well, it says that because of the persecution of Stephen. Do you remember Stephen? Do you remember Stephen when he was killed there in Jerusalem? And finally the church that had been Hiding out in Jerusalem, remember that Jesus said they were to share the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So they scattered, not because necessarily they wanted to, but because they had to, and they scattered. And the scripture says here, it's interesting that Luke, one called it a, a chain that he keeps trying to build for us. We're going to see before long, there's Peter, and then there's Paul. And then there's Paul as the movement takes place. Right now we're in that spot where he's building the chain, looping Peter and Paul into the story. KK and I were reading through this text and I said, meanwhile, back at the ranch. And then I thought, There are going to be some generations listening to me, if I say that phrase, aren't going to have a clue what I'm talking about. So I decided to, I grabbed my phone and said, I better better be careful because 
it'll do it now, you know. But I said, hey, and I called him by name. And uh, I said, uh, where did the phrase, hey, back at the ranch, meanwhile, back at the ranch come from? And, of course, it, Wikipedia contributes it to a Western movie and how the scenes can change. But you've seen that in stories. You, you see that all the time if you watch the whodunits on TV and you start trying to figure out, you've entered, you put one scene here and you build this other scene here and you watch the scenes coming together. God is using Dr. Luke to do that. And so he, he now loops us back into this scene of they left Jerusalem. They started preaching the gospel. Notice the pathway they took. They traveled as far as Phoenicia. Now, where's that? That's modern-day Lebanon, okay? Tyre and Sidus, I've, I've been there. I've had family members live there. Uh, it's pretty fascinating to see the, even some of the ancient ruins in, in ancient Lebanon. Then as far as Cyprus, where's that? It's just a short little boat ride right off the coast of Lebanon. But if you continue up that coast, now can you picture it? I thought about putting a map up here. Can you picture it? You see Israel, you're moving up the coast to Lebanon. And as you move toward, yes, modern day Syria comes across at the top of Lebanon, bordering on Turkey. They went Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city of the day. You had Rome, Alexandria, Antioch. Some say half a million, some say three-quarters of a million. It was inland, but yet there was river access for the travel, and Antioch was a complicated cosmopolitan crossroad. I don't fault anybody pastoring or planting a church in a rural setting. But in case you haven't noticed, this is not rural. Even just trying to go to the airport on Saturday afternoon to get my daughter who flew in. How much time do you add to travel through downtown Atlanta? I'll go around 285 past the great intersection of 75 and 285 and and make your way around to get to the airport. Antioch, complicated city, all kinds of ethnicity, all kinds of language, and notice that there were some of them, well, first, make sure you get the footnote, they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. They couldn't figure out if they were supposed to share the gospel with Gentiles. They may or may not have heard the story of what you saw last week with Peter and Cornelius. They may or may not have heard the story of some of the half-breeds at Samaria that were coming to Christ. So they thought they were supposed to explain to Jews how Jesus was the Messiah. And then they got to Antioch. Now they're looking around and the Jewish population is a small percentage to the half, three-quarters million that's living there. They're meeting all kinds of people on the street that don't have the same religious background. And so what did they do? That's who they were. What did they do? Well, some men from Cyprus and Cyrene showed up. Cyprus, 
that little island off the coast. Cyrene, Africa, probably modern-day Libya, if my memory serves me correctly. So now they're there with multi-ethnic, multi-culture, complex city, more than just Jews. And you can miss this in just a simple reading, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also. You see that? They spoke to the Gentiles also. Preaching the Lord Jesus to them. What did they do? It's interesting to me that the word Lord is used three times right here. I mean, it's so close together, you can't hardly miss it. Preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Do you see it? Uh, in, in mine, I circled it three times to show and drew a little line to make sure you see the connection. They were preaching the Lord Jesus. Some say it's interesting that the emphasis on Lord here and not on Christ is because the starting point in sharing the gospel was different with the Gentile than it was to the Jew. Think about it. The starting point of sharing the gospel with the Jew is you've been looking for a Messiah. Let me tell you, he's come. But the starting point with the Gentile was you have an evil king over you. Life is hard and your bosses are mistreating you. Did you know that God has made a way for you to no longer be a slave to fear but become a child of God? So they preach the good news of Jesus to them. It's interesting how the scripture says that, that the hand of the Lord was with them. What did they do? They preached the Lord Jesus. Now, I was talking with Lynn this morning about the text he was reading. <clears throat> I noticed what you did just now. He used the Lynn modified, amplified version. Uh, I think he changed a word in there as he tried to get you to notice the word preach probably scares you off because who's the preacher in the group? But in the book of Acts, often the word preach, if it's translated that way, is not talking about a public setting like we're in now with a preacher like me. It's talking about explaining the good news of Jesus. As a matter of fact, some of your translations actually say that instead of the word preach. They were telling the good news about Christ. Now, what is the good news about Christ? Boy, I hope week after week, if you continue to be a part of Shalford, either as a friend or family member, I hope you so hear us talk about this good news about Jesus that you learn what it is well enough that you could tell it to somebody else. You know, as a pastor, I have a goal that if any of you tomorrow encounter someone and they say, can you tell me how to have a relationship with God? What would you say? Could you say as these two radicals, <laughs> I mean, these 
these no-name two guys became the very tipping point of the movement to move it from the Jews to the Gentiles. What did they say, this good news about Jesus? Well, the good news is not good until the bad news becomes a reality to you. The bad news is we've, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God and we, we can't mend the relationship. There's nothing we can do. There's not enough works. There's not enough money. There's not enough good deeds. I mean, let's, let's, say, let's say you only sin once a day. Just once a day. You have one bad thought, one bad deed, one bad word, just one. 365 a year. And the math's going to get real hard on me here in a minute, all right? So you do that in a decade, and let's say you live five or six decades as an adult, and you get before God and you say, but God, I didn't sin much, just, just one a day. And he goes, compared to my holiness, I don't care how many times you went to church, how much money you gave, how much good you did, you never overcame the evil and the sinfulness. When the bad news sits on us that we cannot do anything to restore a relationship with a holy God, then the good news becomes really, really good. That God saw us in our state and knew that there was nothing we could do and sent his son to build the bridge back to him who laid down his life on the cross and paid for sin, not his, but ours, and then rose from the dead to offer for us forgiveness and restoration to be reconciled with God and no longer be a slave to sin, but become a child of God. He split the sea. He made a path. He gave us a way to know him. That's good news. And how do we receive that good news? Well, the scripture says that the hand of the Lord was with them. A great number who believed turned to the Lord. What did they do? Don't you find that phrase, the hand of the Lord was with them? How is the hand of the Lord seen in Scripture? Basically two ways. Now you can go find somebody and make a list of five or ten, but I, I just want to make two ways of explanation for you. The hand of the Lord is heavy against us. The hand of the Lord is mighty and strong restoring us. The hand of the Lord was with them. Hey, let me tell you, I can tell in a sermon, I can tell at a certain point, I can tell that God's doing something that goes way beyond what these frail words coming out of a frail body 
The Spirit of God is doing something with the Word of God to cause action in the hearts of people. These guys were not necessarily preaching to the crowds, but they were telling the good news of Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And what happened? When the conviction, by the way, Jesus said when the Spirit comes, he's going to do three things. He's going to convince you of sin, righteousness of judgment, of sin that you've not believed in me, of righteousness that I've made a way to the Father, and of judgment that the prince of this world has already been judged, so you don't have to be judged. You can find release from judgment in Christ. That's what the Spirit of God does. He convinces us of sin. And when he does... He then helps us, moves in us. I can't explain how repentance takes place. I I can't humanly explain it to you. But I know that it's not something we do, but it's not all up to what God does. There's a sense of him doing and us cooperating and turning from and turning to. It's not a work. It's a work of grace when we are turned to the Lord. Now, What were the results? Well, a lot of people started becoming followers of Christ. Verse 22 said it was so much that the report got back to the church in Jerusalem. And by now they're wondering, how much of this we got to go through? I mean, Peter went to Cornelius. I mean, is this really going to, we're going to lose control of this thing in the church? You know, I've seen people that said, man, I sure don't want our church to grow because then nobody will know my name and you know it'll I mean come on this is the kingdom of God and now they say what's going on we need to send somebody up to Antioch to see what's happening and they chose a guy named Barnabas who you already know if you were here a few weeks ago is one of my favorite guys in the New Testament why did they send Barnabas I can only guess a couple of reasons One, where he was originally from. He was from, as I recall, the the island from Cyprus. And so he was a good choice because he's going to walk in there and understand their accent, okay? He was going to be able to go in there and they weren't going to say, well, who's this Jewish guy coming from Jerusalem, okay? He was a converted Jewish guy, but he was Cyprian by birth. But also, Barnabas was a tender man. He was a loving man. The scripture says he was good and he was filled with the spirit and he came and what did he see? Verse 23. He saw the grace of God. How do you see the grace of God? A lot of times you see it in a face. Forgiveness and peace often shows up on a face. Guilt and pain often show up on a face. Sometimes people who've gone through great guilt and pain but found freedom and forgiveness, it shows up on a face. I have to believe he saw grace in their face when he looked at them He saw the grace of God taking Hellenist Gentiles 
and bringing them to Christ. And rather than saying, sit down, boys and girls, I've got to tell you how to become a good Jew. Instead, he was glad and told them, just remain faithful to the Lord and stay on purpose. But he saw so many good things happening. He realized that he needed somebody to help him teach. Verse 25. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. He decided he ought to go get Paul, who is still being called Saul at the moment. And so he went from there over to Tarsus, and he brought back Saul. And what did they do next? For a whole year, they met with the church, taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I want you to think about this for a minute. It's really hard for us to get our minds around it. They didn't have church buildings, okay? They probably didn't have Sunday off of work. It probably wasn't the day in the cycle of a Sabbath. They may have had Saturday. I don't know. They, some places in the world today, they have Friday. But I doubt they had Sunday. Because it was not a Sunday go-to-church culture. But they met. And they listened. And they were hungry. And Saul, being the good teacher of knowing all that stuff and seeing how Christ had fulfilled it all, for a year they taught them. Now please, let me, let me get a little complaint in here and you not take it too personal, all right? It used to be that people would come to church three out of four Sundays. Now studies show that they come one or two out of four. Sometimes I, I think about preaching and I think, man, that's such an important sermon. I want everybody to hear it. And then I show up and go, well, where are the other folks that didn't hear, you know, that didn't come? Uh, what do we do about bringing everybody together, shepherding everybody along? And then I've gone to places, literally, where they walked a day and slept on the ground and waited until sunup for the teaching to start. I was teaching a group of pastors one time in, in Kenya, brand new pastors. These folks, most of them don't eat uh, but one meal a day, maybe. And we decided we would feed them a big lunch every day. And I was standing there teaching, and I, came, I said, okay, guys, it's time to take a break. Let's go eat lunch. And they said, no, no, no. Please finish this topic. We have questions. And I thought, really? I mean, in America, people go, finish this sermon. Uh, I got to go have lunch, Right? Please catch the hunger of these Christians in Antioch. They were so hungry to be taught, and they just couldn't get enough. And for a year, when did they do it? I guess at night. When did they do it? I don't know, but they wanted to hear the Scripture. And there was so much change in their life that they were first called Christians there. The word Christian is found three times in the New Testament. Of all this Christianity stuff <laughs> that we claim to be a part of, three times. Once here, once when Paul is giving his testimony and the king says, 
man, you've almost convinced me to be a Christian. We'll get to that later in the book of Acts. And one more time, Peter's writing and says, if you have to suffer as a Christian, those are the only three times it's used. Many believe that the first time it was used here, it was not a positive term. That it was a derogatory term, meaning you little Christ follower. It's like when you look at a kid and you say, man, looks just like you, James, must be James Jr., right? They were saying, you guys are looking so much like Jesus Christ, we're just going to call you little Christ. The culture meant it as a put-down. The believers, according to some in church history, wore it as a badge of honor. The stories told of one guy when he was about to be killed for being a Christ follower said, yes, I am a Christian. And they killed him. The attitudes of Christ showed up in these people. They were hungry and they received the word and great grace was working and they looked like Jesus in the way they responded. But there's one more thing I want you to see about their response. Verse 27 says, prophet came from Jerusalem and told them there was going to be a famine. Verse 29 says, the disciples determined every one of them according to his ability to send relief to the brothers in Judea. The joke is that pastor said one of the last things to get saved in the church is a pocketbook, all right? One of the last things to get saved is, is your wallet, okay? But listen, when God's working in people's hearts, mercy ministry is not something that you have to pull the church to do. Serving hurting people is something the church begs for the opportunity to do. In the book of Corinthians, it talks about those who had no means, but they begged for a chance to get in on the offering so they could be a part of serving those in need. I don't want you to miss before we close the book on the church in Antioch for, for a while. I want you to see as they received the word, their hearts were moved to do something about helping people, sharing Christ, and meeting needs. That's the result of the church in Antioch. So today as we close, I want to change the name at the top of the screen and say, what about Shalford? Who are we? Well, we are a church in a commuter culture, complex in nature, Don't have a little square right down the street where the pastor can go hang out at the little restaurants around the square and everybody know everybody. My 96-year-old father-in-law constantly tells the story as a Baptist how much he liked the pastor of the Methodist Church in Roswell. He said he used to go downtown and he'd talk to everybody and everybody in town knew his name. Then he tells a story about another Baptist pastor that wasn't his pastor. Said he went out and he knew everybody and everybody knew him. 
I don't know how in the world to tell the community around this church that we're here. Is it a bigger sign? I mean, is it a, is it a neon, you know, flashing, corny things put on the sign? I don't know. But who are we? A complex, multicultural, commuter church. That's who we are. What must we do? We must continue in grace and in the word sharing the good news of Jesus and being moved to see that there are needy people and we can meet needs and share Christ. Some of those needs are veiled in great socioeconomic success with deep pain in their heart. Need I remind you of a suicide in the news over the last three or four days of a very successful family in our nation and yet depression mental illness relational problems rampant just to name a few what must we do we must share Christ and meet needs and what's the result that we desire Oh, that the hand of the Lord would be upon us. Oh, that he would cause his face to shine upon us. And that we would know such peace with God and peace with each other that maybe some would say, are you a Christian? I'm not sure I've ever met a real one. I've met church-going people. But there's something about you that makes me want to ask, how do you have so much peace? How are you so positive in life? And for us to say, I'm sure glad you ask. Let me go get my preacher and get him to explain it to you. Don't you dare. <laughs> Don't you dare. You tell them, let me explain this good news. All of us have sinned and all of us are broken and we can't fix it. So God sent his only begotten son that if we would believe in him, we wouldn't have to perish, but we could have what? Everlasting life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it works. We pray now by your spirit that you would continue to work in and through us. As the years go by, may we be known in some small way like this church in Antioch. Taking the challenge of the multicultural metropolitan setting may we be willing to make friends with those outside of the religious realm and tell them the good news of Jesus. May we be hungry to gather with your people and study your word. And may the result be that your hand is so on us that people will turn and believe in Christ and they will see Christ in us. For that is our prayer in Jesus' name.
Would you look this way? We're going to close today by coming to the Lord's table. You have on your seat, I think almost every one of you have a card and a pen nearby. I'm going to ask you to take that and just write your name at the top. And if there's any one thing you would want us to pray, any one thing that God's doing in your life, I went through all the cards from the last couple of weeks. I've seen the things you've shared even in the member meetings. So we just want to know what's going on in your life and how we can pray for you. So take a moment if there's anything you'd like to write. And it's been working well for you to come and lay that down like you're laying your prayer request before the Lord and take the Lord's table. Now, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I hope this won't be awkward for you because I think there'll be enough people that are around you that you won't feel the need to come. If we stood and came by row, then you would be exposed and feel awkward. But we're not going to do that. We're going to say whenever you're ready, you come. And you come to the Lord's table and you take this bread and drink this cup and remember that he died for you. The scripture says you're going to preach. Remember I made a little big deal out of that word. You're going to preach a sermon. That's what it says. For as often as you take this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim his death until he comes. So we're going to hear a bunch of sermons just like firecrackers popping in the air as the Spirit of God works in you joyfully to come and celebrate that he died for you. If for some reason there's something heavy on your heart and you need to pray before you come, then come and kneel and I'll just stand here and I'll be happy to pray with you. So, are the instructions clear? You bring any prayer request, you take of the Lord's table, and if you don't know the Lord, then you just wait, and no one will call you out. So everyone stand, if you would. Father, we pray now, as we sing a song of celebration and come to this table, would we be reminded that Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us, And may we do this to remember you. In Jesus' name. So you sing, and when you're ready, would you come?